Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to the Solo Collective. I'm your host, Rebecca Seal. Today, I wanted to go back to a topic that we first talked about in series one with Henry Holland, the idea of passion and identity when you work on your own. And if you haven't heard that interview, then I do reckon you should go back and listen to it because Henry was so candid and so honest about what the experience of losing a business that he was so kind of identified with what that did to him and how he was beginning to put himself back together after that experience. Even though we didn't totally agree on everything to do with passion, because he thinks passion's a really great thing and I'm not convinced, (laughs) it was still a brilliant conversation and I'm really glad that we had it. But for this one, I wanted to talk to a writer called Sarah Jaffe, who has written a book called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted and Alone, which is quite an amazing book it's so well researched and so kind of dense with argument and and fact so she really is like a serious leading voice on this topic but she's also obviously as a freelance journalist she's a solo worker and so I think it's really important that we get her perspective on what the experience of working by herself has been I wanted to talk to her because she's got this really fascinating perspective on how we have a kind of unrequited love relationship with our jobs. And we've got this cultural thing going where we talk about and think about and and even feel about our jobs, a kind of a level of emotion and love that's never really been the case in human history before. And she wants us to think about why that's not really a very good idea and and why that relationship will always be unrequited, because obviously work can't love you back, not like a human. (laughs) Um, And yet we've kind of got this situation where we behave as though work is an actual relationship in our lives. And I think that's very, very risky, particularly for solo workers, where we have less boundary, less structure, less framework, less network, less support than a lot of other workers might have. I think it's even more important for us that we understand the risks of doing that and we understand where it came from and how we got to this place. Hello. (laughs) Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Solo Collective. I just finished your book. I've left it downstairs. I was going to brandish it at you so you could see how full of post-it notes it is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My favourite thing. I don't want to put words in your mouth, obviously, but I feel as though our kind of philosophies around certain areas of work are quite aligned in the sense that I have a real problem with the idea of passion and work. Um, which I think is very similar to your issue with the idea of work as something you can or should love. And a lot of the work that I've done 
to try and help people who work by themselves cope better with it has been about pulling at that thread a bit and saying you don't have to have a passion and in many ways it's better if you don't (laughs) and explaining (laughs) that I don't have one that I really I really enjoy what I do and I and I find meaning in some of it but that it's my job (laughs) it's not actually who I am and I I wondered if we could explore some of that stuff about how our identities can be so tightly bound up with the work that we do and how passion for our work can make us vulnerable to exploitation. Can you kind of can you kind of share a bit about the idea of unrequited love of work? Yeah. And where that came from for you, how you kind of realized that that was an issue. So I'm a journalist and that is definitely a field that it, it now expects this kind of love and devotion and passion and do it because you love it, not because of the money, in a way that is actually fairly recent in my industry, right? And like, I'm, I'm American, so most of my sort of background on this is American, but this is broadly true across the world, right? That like, a researcher that I met recently described like doing her research in some of these, you know, web media outlets offices remember offices <laughs> and seeing like a big tv screen with like the numbers of clicks on these articles just like above everybody's heads all day and so you get these weird conditions at the same time as like working at this place is supposed to be your dream job right and it's that space in between the promises of how cool this job is going to be and the reality that you're grinding out content for the clicks you know that i think i started thinking about this reality and how it was meshing at the same time with so many stories that I heard from so many other people in a variety of industries. And before I was a journalist, I waited tables for quite a long time. It took me several years after finishing my undergraduate degree to actually like get it together, go to journalism school, finally finally have some money put aside so I could do unpaid internships in order to get into the actual job that I actually wanted. And realizing that having worked that hard to get into this supposedly dream job, that the conditions were awful. It's not an accident that as the real actual material conditions of people's lives are getting worse, this rhetoric of loving your job and having passion for your job and and doing what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, that rhetoric is not an accident. It's not something that like working people decided on their own. This is something that's been pressed upon us to keep us working, even though work gives us less and less back. I think that's so powerful. I hate that phrase so much. Do what you love or... um, find your passion and you'll never have to work a day in your life. Where did mm-hmm. that even come from? It's so it's so poisonous. Which is not to say you can't love your work. Right. You, you know, some people are lucky enough to find that that does work out for them. But I think there's an issue which is maybe particularly true for solo workers. It's probably true for a lot of other workers too, which is that we get kind of emotionally entangled with the work that we do. It can take on a status in our lives that's akin to an actual relationship (laughs) like with an actual human (laughs) yeah Um, and I mean I don't want to spoiler your book but the last line about love being too big and beautiful and grand and messy and human to be wasted on a temporary fact of life like work seemed so so prescient on that point because work will never give us what 
human relationships can give us. And yet we've got ourselves to a position where our jobs have kind of expanded to fill all sorts of bits of our lives and and elbow out, I would imagine, therefore, other aspects of life, like relationships with human beings. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's so insidious the way that like this idea and and you know you get it in a certain kind of feminist conversation right like i was raised this way my parents were very much like you need to have a career and you need to take care of yourself and you need to do all these things and you worry about relationships later and of course my parents were not ill-intentioned people but the way that this ended up sort of affecting me, I realized later, was was to make me think that like work was the most important thing in my life and anything else was was sort of aside. And it really didn't teach me how to think about work. And if I can recommend another podcast while I'm talking to you for your podcast, um, Esther Perel's How's Work oh, podcast. Such a great podcast. Yeah. Is so brilliant. The work one broke me so much. And one of the things that she talks about in the very beginning, in the first episode, is is sort of were you raised for autonomy or were you raised for interconnection, right? I don't remember exactly the term she used, but it it was this this understanding suddenly that I had been told over and over and over and over and over again that my number one job in life was my job and that I had to have a career and I had to be successful and I had to be all of this stuff and that that left me really sort of figuring out as an adult how to actually have functional relationships with other humans. In actual fact, and I sort of write about this very early on in the book, like the the nuclear family as we think of it was not natural. It was like very sort of specifically created in a particular period of capitalism to serve the needs of that particular period of capitalism. So like Henry Ford literally had people who would go inspect his workers' homes to make sure that they were married and they were straight and their houses were not, you know, messy and that their wives were doing only domestic labor and were not going to a job. All of these things in order to get his famous $5 a day wage. So like there is some really heavy social engineering going on to sort of fit us into the family, the same way as that same social engineering was going on to fit us into the factory as a workplace, right? And that the collapse of that period of time that was built on the nuclear family and the factory, that sort of left us where we are now, where our relationships are changing, um, our relationship to work is changing, and now with COVID sort of shoving us all into working from home, I've been working from home for most of the last 10 years. So everybody sort of suddenly having the, the work from home experience or the go to work and it's got more dangerous experience or you're just laid off experience, right? It's basically what's happened to most of us in the last two years. The work from home thing, right? It, it blurs the boundaries so much more between what is your job and what is the rest of your life. So can we dig in a bit into this moment or, or time period when we shifted away from, we being humans, shifted away from viewing work as a kind of transactional, maybe even slightly adversarial process 
and and shifted it towards being something that we're supposed to love or something that we're supposed to behave at least as though we've got a kind of deep emotional connection to. I think that from your book, it was the sort of 70s and 80s where that shift began. But could you kind of, yeah, spill a bit of the history of that? Yeah, it was so interesting. I was doing a book talk with my friend Dave Zirin, who is a sports journalist, and he sent me this article that someone had sent him from like, I think it was the Tampa Bay or St. Petersburg newspaper in like 1981. And it was like, do you know any workaholics? And it was workaholism was a bad thing in this article. But the description just sounded like, you know, what your typical job ad would say now. We want somebody who's passionate about their job and devoted and thinks about work first and all of these things that like now are just sort of expected of us. And this was 1981 was a year after I was born. You know, this is not that long ago. But we have now been sort of over and over and over again marinated in this idea that that's actually good. And so like I was saying, it, it the sort of collapse of the industrial job and with it, I think this is a thing that I'm sort of gravitating towards talking about more and more having finished this book, the collapse of the nuclear family as we knew it, that these things are related and they're deeply um, intertwined because neither of them were ever natural and the way we're living now is also not natural. So the, the factory goes away. Right. In the UK and the US, the UK, I think, is the country that deindustrialized the fastest, the US somewhat slower, but still, you know. So these are both processes that happened very quickly in the mid to late 70s to early 80s, and also that are still going on. The factory is a place where you can go, you can get a job, you don't have to get an education sort of tailored to this being your career, you can just go apply at the factory, and they will teach you what you need to know to do the assembly line or whatever it is. And you will have a decent wage and union protections and vacations, and you will be able to buy a house and all of these things that were promised explicitly because the job itself sucked, right? The job itself was miserable. And any factory workers, and I've interviewed quite a few of them, nobody is ever like, oh, I I really love this job. You know, I've talked to people who are fighting against plant closures in their community and they're still like, yeah, but the job itself is not like what we're going to miss. Like it's the paycheck. It's the the security. It's the ability to like build a life. And the work itself was not meaningful, but the agency and the sort of power it gave you was meaningful. And now the stability is the thing that's gone. And the trade off we've gotten the sort of way that capitalism absorbed the demands of movements of the 60s that were kind of like, man, the factory job sucks, is that now we have supposedly lovable work, right? We're supposed to be excited about it. And we go to school for years and years to get good at it. And if you don't get a job in it, you go back to school like I did, get more school, more debt to get good at it. And that is supposed to be fulfilling in itself because, P.S., you're going to be paying off your student loans until you're in your 40s, if you're lucky, and you will not be able to buy a house. You will be insecure. Your job will probably not last your entire life or even five years. You'll be bouncing from job to job. And this whole sort of insecure network, and that's, I should add, for sort of middle class jobs and for people who didn't get a degree you're in even more precarious work that lasts even less long, right? Like Amazon warehouse jobs, the turnover there is over 100% in a year. So 
almost nobody lasts in those jobs for more than a year. And that's what you have now in place of the stability of the industrial job. And so what do you think the effect of all of that is for people who work by or for themselves? Like, I was really interested to read something you, I think you said it in an interview rather than in the book, that freelancing can be viewed as a as a zero-sum game by freelancers. I'm not saying it is a zero-sum game, but that is that is the perception. And that's certainly a whole lot I've fallen into, like comparison, you know, oh my God, they got that gig. I should have got that gig. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, and this still happens to me. And I wrote this whole book about this stuff and I, you know, I can, I can talk my own ears off <laughs> about solidarity and all of that. And I still definitely get that like feeling a lot of the time. So one of the things about this sort of critique of industrial work, right, that I mentioned that like the way that capitalism sort of absorbs these critiques is going, okay, so people are saying that working for 40 years in a factory really sucks. And so we want to do something else. We want to have more control over our lives. Um, We want more autonomy. This is a thing that sort of famously the autonomous movement in Italy talked about, but also, you know, was true of, of factory workers across sort of Western Europe and the U.S., Okay, so people want more autonomy. They don't want to have a boss. Great. You can be your own boss now. And this is, again, this is the storyline of everything from being an Uber driver to being a freelance writer, right? That you are now free and you have more autonomy and you have more power somehow. um, And you're your own boss and you're an independent contractor and you're blah, blah, blah. And that means that no company you work for owes you much of anything except like the bare minimum paycheck that they will probably jerk you around to even get that far, right? (laughs) We can talk about the pay conditions later. (laughs) But this idea of working for yourself comes out of a very rational desire for people not to have a boss because having a boss is crap. The problem is when you're working for yourself, you're not really working for yourself, right? I'm not cutting myself a paycheck. I'm still working for other people. I'm just working for lots of them. So I have lots of bosses, actually. And I have like In addition to that, you sort of have this need to like be performing your personal brand all over social media all the time. And like that sort of panopticon effect of like, not only do I have to like perform my brand at optimal whatever, but if I say something or do something that is both part of my job, right? I am a journalist and a political commentator. It is literally my job to talk about politics on the internet, but that also potentially turns off all sorts of people who might hire me. And so I'm always walking this little tightrope trying to see like, oh, what what can I say? What what should I say? How should I respond to this thing? How should I respond to this article? Should I write about this? Should I not write about this? Oh my God, I need a vacation. Um, <laughs> like this, this pressure, right, is not actually pressure that we're putting on ourselves. It's actually pressure that like this situation of work puts on you. And and I, you know, I reference the panopticon, but like the idea of the panopticon was a design for a prison where you couldn't tell if you were being observed. So the prisoners would always behave as if they were being observed and you would have sort of open cells and there was a tower in the middle where the guards could see you, but you couldn't see them. And so the idea of it which is perfectly described for sort of being a freelancer in this economy, is that you will always act as if you were being watched because you never know when you are. That's so perfect. And that's that's the sort of surveillance that we live with now, yeah. right? Yeah, God, that's so perfect. That's exactly that's exactly how freelancing feels. Although I would also add that we do, freelancers and solo workers do have a tendency to behave as though We're being watched, even though actually the only person who's watching is us. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I've I've t- I've talked a bit about this on the podcast before, but I think it's worth coming back to. Like, how how have we got to the position that we're in now, where we confuse busyness with status? And why have we swapped getting adequately paid to, for stuff for status via busyness? Like, why why did that happen? Because because I think I think that's true for an awful lot of us. I think you know, as you say, working conditions are getting poorer. Rates are certainly not increasing. I don't know for other industries whether they're actively going down in the way that they are for journalism and writing. But I would imagine it's a similar situation for for most industries, certainly creative industries. So how did that happen? How did we stop fighting for more money and get stuck with just being really busy as a way to show yeah. how great we are? Right. How many times have a, has a boss told you, you, Rebecca, also you listeners, that they can replace you easily? Right. And that, again, that happened to me in restaurants when I was waiting tables that they were like, whatever, we can replace you. And it happens in journalism. Right. When you say I need to be paid more money, people will say, well, somebody else will do it for less. OK, they won't be me. And now finally, I have like somewhat of that level of bargaining power. Like I can say, yeah, OK, they'll do it, but they don't they won't do it as well as I will. But when you're getting started, you can't do that. Nobody knows who you are and thus doesn't care. And so you have to sort of repeatedly essentially beg for work. Right. I write about this a lot in the sort of internship chapter right, where suddenly we are in a position of doing free or very, very, very low paid work just to become eligible to get the paid work, which is ridiculous if we think about it, right? Like we're not doing this work because, oh my God, work, it's such an exciting natural human activity that humans had to come up with it, right? We're doing this work because it makes somebody else money. All of this sort of endless hustle to prove yourself worthy of a job, right? Whether you are the factory worker making concessions to work for less money, longer hours, expand the workday. You know, this is like Marx's number one argument in Capital is is that like the boss will always try to expand the workday because that is where they make their profits. Um, If they can stretch out your workday while paying you the same amount of money, then that's all money and that's all value that they're accumulating. So This is still true now when you see people, you know, whether it's the fact that people have to have two jobs in order to make ends meet or, you know, for me, when I was waiting tables, I was doing journalism on the side for free or very, very little money. And then when I got my first journalism job, I was behind the scenes on a TV show. And so I was still doing my own freelance writing on the side so that I could actually make a name for myself so that I could actually get (laughs) hired to do that full time. And that insecurity you know, turns into busyness and busyness itself. It's again, it's that panopticon thing, right? You have to be busy because if you're not busy, then you're not working hard enough. And if you're not working hard enough, then you're not 
going to get hired the next time, and so on and so on and so on. And the other interesting thing that I wanted to mention is Thomas Paketti also wrote a bunch about this in sort of Capital in the 21st Century, the way that rich people used to not work. You know, rich people used to be like the royal family. We're like, oh, yes, we're just going to sit around collecting land rents. <laughs> and, you know, the, the people who talk about having like X number of hundred pounds a year in, you know, Jane Austen novels, that's land rents, right? They're just living off of land rents. And that was what wealth was. You didn't work. My God, you know, Mr. Darcy didn't have a job. Somewhere in all of this, rich people are still collecting land rents. Um, just ask your London landlord. And, but like, they're also, you know, now working in finance. And they are the CEO of Amazon or Walmart. And so now you have sort of rich people who work and who do make a sort of wage, although also what they make is is a share is shares in the company. So it's still sort of an ownership stake. But it's not just a status symbol to lie around collecting land rents anymore. Now it's a status symbol to like shoot yourself to Mars. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also, I mean, this is something that came up in conversation um, in another episode with Anna Sale for this series, but she was she was reminding me, I guess I did know this, but she was reminding me that whether you have adequate amount of money, an adequate amount of money or not, is not down to you. <laughs> it's very, very circumstantial. And I feel as though we've been sold a lie on that front too, because we are taught, and Rahaf Harfouche talked to me about this last series too, we are taught to believe that if we just work hard enough, all all the good things will come. And that simply isn't true. Right. (laughs) So how much can we sort of decouple ourselves from these ideas? Like, I feel as though they're very structural, And are there things that we can do as solo workers to kind of, because arguably we've got more freedom than a lot of other kinds of workers. So arguably we've got, we've got the opportunity to kind of make some changes, but to what degree is that actually possible given that there are these, these societal structures are pretty heavy, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge is that there are things you can do to make your life easier in some way or another, right? Those can be everything from like after I had been freelancing and living in New York City for a while, my partner and I moved to the Hudson Valley in New York. And for half of what we were paying in rent for a tiny Brooklyn apartment, bought a house. Um, And that was like that was something I could do because I had gotten to a point where I didn't need to be in an office talking about sort of political fights that we can get into around wages, around things like statutory sick pay, which you actually have in the UK, um, we don't have in most of the US. Um, All of these sort of political issues that we can have fights over that will affect solo workers, as well as people in more traditional working positions. Those are things we sort of need to do with other people. And some of that organizing can certainly happen on the internet. And I think, you know, again, like work from home exploding during COVID has really made a lot of people think about this as a way that people work rather than it becoming something that gets a little bit lost in the shuffle. Do you think that all solo workers should find a union to be part of? Yes. And you can do that in this country, um, which is great. It's a little bit harder in the U.S. because actually most union sort of organizing is done workplace by workplace. But yeah, I mean, if you're a freelance journalist here, you can join the NUJ, National Union of Journalists, 
There are other unions that are doing work in other sort of white collar professions. The IWGB has like a charity workers branch. So, you know, there are or different kinds of organizing, I mean, that will have an effect on our working conditions because our working conditions are our living conditions, right? If there was rent control in London, maybe more of us could afford an apartment that actually had a designated workspace rather than like working from huddled up next to our beds. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the fundamental problems with, you know, I'm extremely pro working from home in general, but um, I, I think that one of the massive issues is that Prior to last year, nobody chose their place to live with the view that they would work in it and live in it at the same time. Very few of us made that choice and very few of us had the means to make that choice. But if we had, we probably would have chosen different very areas differently. in which to live or, you know, yeah, exactly. So that's a huge challenge. In your experience of solo working, what's been, did you, have you ever had any kind of amazing advice that's been sort of transformative for you in your <laughs> <laughs> solo working experience um don't work in bed <laughs> very good basic but very good advice it will screw up your sleep no I mean I think one of the things that I have really tried to do lately is I actually this summer even I sat down and sort of wrote myself work rules and I'm like okay here are some things that I need to take into account to change my relationship to work one of them is is very simple but it was just like Reading time is part of my work day because, you know, I'm a writer, but like to be a writer, one has to read a lot. And I would always feel like I was procrastinating if I like stopped to read an article and I would always, you know, books were for reading after work hours, but then like that's still work. So I'm not, if I, you know, sit at my desk from 10 to six and bash out an article and a bunch of emails and pitches and blah, 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 and do one podcast interview and then that's done at six o'clock and then I go sit on the couch and read a book for another two hours I've actually not stopped working no you know and so like trying to remind myself to see these things as important parts of my work rather than things that that I need to do after hours so given all of this is there hope (laughs) she says slightly desperately (laughs) (laughs) I am a practitioner of uh the phrase is uh pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will right and i think that that is an important way to go through life or as my friend mariam kaba says um hope is a discipline and which that does mean it's more work but i think one of the things that people have asked me a lot is is covid going to change our relationships to work and the answer to that question is like both yes, obviously, but also like what that change is going to be is up to us. And we are in a period of time right now where that that will be shaped by how we respond now. Sarah, thank you so much for this. It is a hopeful conversation. I do think it's a hopeful conversation because I think that it's, it's I, I can't help but think this is an opportunity, this moment. I, I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe it's less intellectual optimism just like a force of will yeah Um, exactly whatever it takes that i i do have it i am optimistic about what what comes next for us when it comes to work so thank you very much thank you conversation is being in a relationship with your job that's too intense and too obsessive a bit like being in that kind of relationship with a person 
is that something that we need to kind of look at and think is this a healthy relationship this relationship with my work or is it domineering is it like a bullying relationship do we need to see some of it in that way I feel as though I think that's part of what I took from this conversation that we need to kind of monitor the relationships we have with our jobs but maybe we also need to make this a topic of conversation that we have between solo workers as well because and I'm not saying I've nailed this at all but I do feel as though I'm beginning to manage my relationship with my work better and see it as something closer to just a job and one small part of who I am as a human but not everything and maybe by having conversations like this one on this podcast but maybe also between ourselves as well we can maybe spread that message which sounds a bit evangelical but maybe this is something to be evangelical about maybe this is something that's so useful and so kind of life-changingly important we do need to keep on saying it as Sarah says work will not love you back Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Solo Collective. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have anything you would like covered, let us know by leaving us a review or you can message us at The Solo Collective on Instagram. You have been listening to The Solo Collective with me, Rebecca Seal, a Chalk and Blade original produced by Laura Hyde with support from Fatuma Kara, original music by Dee Plume and engineering by Matt Nielsen. Chalk and Blade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.